Please remain standing and pray with me. Holy Spirit, we come to you completely dependent upon your activity among us this morning to be the expounder of the word of God that you alone inspired. You're the one who gave us this word. You're the one that revealed the Father's heart. You're the one who now lives in as the very soul of the church, giving it life and breath. Lord, Holy Spirit, come now and speak a word into our hearts that will be transformational, that will be encouraging, and that will empower us to live by faith. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, I'm going to be preaching out of Hebrews, but I just want to return quickly to the gospel text. Uh, Jesus said, I came to cast fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. That's what I love about Jesus and Luke's gospel. He's so sweet and friendly and... (laughs) You know, it just makes you feel all warm and fuzzy, and it's all about love. It's just love. <laughs> it is. It's, and about judgment, too. But I'm not going to preach about that text. Uh, wait, you know, come back three years from now when the lectionary rolls around for the gospel text. I'll do that one. Uh, but I want to follow up, really, with uh, Father Art Going, Canon Art Going's message from last week and build upon that because we're actually going to be reading out of Hebrews for three weeks. We're in the middle of a three-week week segment of reading from the little book of Hebrews, which is a, 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 a kind of a special book in the New Testament. We really don't know who the author is, but as Art Going said, he's probably a pastor. He's writing to a very young church congregation. And so we're going to be building on that message that Canon Art brought last week. Now, let me refresh your memory as to the background of the passage we heard from Hebrews. The pastor, the author of Hebrews, is writing to a community of fairly new followers of Jesus Christ. And one of the main reasons that he writes this letter is because these new believers are beginning, listen, they're beginning to waver in their trust in God and in their commitment to God. And for some reason, they are on the verge of what the writer of Hebrews calls shrinking back. They're on the verge of shrinking back from their commitment to God. And based on the internal evidence of chapter 10 of Hebrews, it appears that here are some of the conditions that they're experiencing. They're they're experiencing increased opposition for following Jesus. They have been publicly humiliated and afflicted. Some have been thrown in jail for their faith. They have had their private property plundered either by the state or by the mob. And this was just not working out like they had expected. Because they were expecting Jesus to come soon, and they were going to reign with him in glory. And that sounded like a good thing. Instead, that was not what was happening. Instead, they were reviled. They're severely economically disadvantaged for following Jesus Christ. Real life had collided, and this is so critical. Real life had collided with unbiblical expectations. And for some of them, they were thinking about tossing in the towel. And thus the writer of Hebrews has to tell them back in chapter 10, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence in God, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere and preserve their souls. Do not throw away your confidence in God. 
This is a critical passage because there is so much misunderstanding in the church today about what it means to live by faith in Jesus Christ. Indeed, I would, I would maintain that there is active false teaching in the church about what living by faith means. And if we are misled or deceived by unbiblical teaching, it can lead to us, it can result in us shrinking back and giving up on following Christ. What I mean to say is this, if you have an unbiblical understanding of faith and you are like that Hebrew congregation and it collides with real life, you might say, well, I didn't sign up for this. I don't think I want to do this anymore. It's what I think when I'm hiking. Uh, we, uh, Brandon McAllister and I went last week on, it was, I, it was billed as the toughest hike in the eastern seaboard. And I'm thinking, pshaw, <laughs> not in North Carolina. No, there's no way. And as we were, started at 3,000 feet and we were going to go to a ridge run at 6,000 feet, somewhere around the 5,000 foot mark, I thought, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> This is not what I was hoping for. Where are the beautiful vistas? Here's what we're going to do this morning. First of all, we need to define our terms. And then we need to ask this question. What does it look like to live the life of faith? Just what does that really look like? And finally, we need to have, and I always think this is important, what are some concrete take-home applications from this passage of Scripture? So let's just jump right in and define our terms. When the Bible speaks about faith, most of the time, it is not talking about an agreement to a set of doctrinal propositions. While we say we do confess our faith, in the words of the Nicene Creed, we're confessing our faith. That's not usually, however, what we're talking about when we talk about, the fa- about New Testament faith. It's not talking about agreeing to a set of doctrinal propositions. It can mean that, but most of the time it doesn't. In other words, biblical faith is not about giving intellectual assent or agreement to a list of theological truths. That would be kind of like mental assent given to, you know, mathematical axioms or propositions, A equals A. That's not what we're talking about when we mean biblical faith. Instead, biblical faith is almost always, in the New Testament at least, trust in a person. Biblical faith is trust in the God of Israel who has put on flesh and come to us in Jesus Christ. Biblical faith is trusting this God and his covenant promises that he has made with his people. That's what biblical faith is. It is faith in a person. Now, let me tell you something that I have learned, and I've learned it through some hard lessons as a believer, very hard lessons. Trusting anyone, listen, you know this, but listen, Trusting anyone is a decision of the will. We choose to trust another person. If we are wise, we will make that decision based on their character. But we always end up trusting someone as a decision of our will. Now, don't, now if you happen to be wearing Calvinist undies, <laughs> don't get them in a knot over what I'm about to say. Can I say that in church? Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've got a pair. I usually wear them when I'm hiking. It was just, I was just predestined to be on this mountain. <laughs> no, I really, seriously, I know that God's grace always goes before our response to him. I know that God is the initiator in our relationship with him. I know that. But let me tell you something. 
As far as it lies with you and me, trusting God is a decision of our will. Back in 2007, uh, my family and I were living in a, in a different town. Nikki knows where we were living. <laughs> and my family and I had poured three years of our lives into trying to plant another church in that town. In order to plant that church, I had sacrificed a career in a mainline denomination. We had walked away from promotion and advancement and from benefits and health care and a guaranteed income. And the real hero in that is my wife, who was willing to do that. We had given away far more than 10% of our income, and as a result, uh, we, we were blessed and successful. No. No, the result was not blessing. It was not success. The result was that I lost my job in a painful way. The result was that my family was so deeply wounded by the experience that we will all bear the scars for the rest of our lives, and unfortunately, I think my children most of all. We had to sell our home. I couldn't get a job for the first time in my adult life. Starbucks wouldn't hire me. I wasn't cool enough. Home Depot wouldn't hire me. I was overqualified. We had no income. And at that moment, I felt betrayed and abandoned by God. I had a wife and three children, and one of whom was in college at the time, and I had no income. And it had all happened not because I was in some deep, horrible sin, but because I was trying to radically obey and follow Jesus Christ. My trust in God was at the lowest ebb of my life. And in that time, I had to make this decision, and it was a decision of the will. Either God was who he said he was in the Bible, or he isn't. Either he is a loving God who knows me and cares for me and knows my family and cares for my family, or he isn't and he doesn't. And that dark, dark time, in that dark, dark time, I had to choose between those two binary realities. And yes, by God's grace, I decided that no matter what things looked like at the moment, God was real and his promises were true. Those words for su from suffering Job were my prayer, and they sub summed up my decision to trust God. Job chapter 13, verse 15, even if he kills me, I will hope in him. Even if he kills me, I will hope in him. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says in the first verse of chapter 11, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. None of the promises God of God seemed to be fulfilled in my life in 2007. The fulfillment of those promises at that moment fell under the classification of things not seen. Faith was the decision to trust God in that moment. It was the confidence that he was still at work somehow in a way that I didn't understand, perceive, or can see behind the scenes. The, uh, the poet James Russell Lowell expressed that confidence in the trustworthiness of God even when outward circumstances seemed to put a lie to the promises of God in his great anti-slavery uh, anti poem, 
the present crisis. He wrote that, he penned that in the lead-up to the Civil War. And in that poem, he says, Careless seems the great avenger. The great avenger. History's pages but record one death grapple in the darkness, twixt old systems and the word. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. And so that leads us to the question, what does it look like, therefore, to authentically live the life of faith? Well, in order to illustrate that, and as uh, Canon Art said last week, the writer of Hebrews breaks out the family picture album of Israel at that point to show us, to illustrate to us what living by faith looks like. Okay, here we go. This is Hebrews eleven thirty two 32 and following. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Now that sounds right. That's what the life of faith ought to look like, folks. It should look like those people. It conquers kingdoms. It obtains the promises of God. It's widows having their children raised from the dead. It's Daniel spending a peaceful night in the lion's den. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing unharmed in the fiery furnace, just walking around, not even smelling like smoke. I can't get away with that when I'm cooking barbecue. When you trust God, the life of faith is signs and wonders and victory and glory. Right? Health, wealth, and prosperity, right? And if you're not experiencing these things, then you just don't have enough faith, right? <laughs> but that's not where this passage stops. There are other pictures in the family album of Israel that illustrate the life that is trusting God. And here's how he continues. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in sheep, in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. In the uh, current political discourse of today, these weren't winners. They're losers. These are losers. They must be here to reveal what inferior, defective faith looks like. They weren't making a positive confession. 
They weren't speaking the rhema word of faith. If they had, if they had, if they had, had enough faith and spoke the word of faith, they would, things would have turned out all right. I'm in the fire. I'm, I'm, I'm getting sown in two. Don't confess it. <laughs> They're just losers. But that is not what the Bible says. In fact, instead of this part of the list being examples of people with inferior faith, it says of those saints who were imprisoned and stoned and killed by the sword and sawn in two that the world was not worthy of them. They were too good for planet Earth. Their faith was so great, they were too good for this reality. These are the greatest in the hall of faith because, listen, they are still trusting God when they die without receiving God's promises. That's the greatest faith. I'm going to trust him even in death and not receiving his promises. I still know that he is going to find a way to fulfill all his promises to me. Let me tell you something right now. If you have ever told someone that they just need to keep trusting God because it will all work out, and by saying that you mean it will all work out in this life, you need to repent of misrepresenting God. You need to repent of a blatantly unbiblical book of Hebrews, unbiblical worldview. Living the Christian life and really trusting God can result in you spending a night in the lion's den unharmed. There, I just read a, um, uh, I just read, I think it was in Egypt that this happened recently. Uh, uh, it was in a Muslim country. A, pa- a Christian pastor was, uh, was imprisoned, and I'll go back and find the, I'll source this for you, but uh, they had let a pack, and it says a pack of rabid dogs. I don't think, I don't think they were genuinely rabid. I don't know. A pack of hungry, angry street dogs were let loose into his cell to rip him apart. And they did this twice. The first pack of dogs just laid down and went to sleep. The second pack of dogs cuddled up to him and licked him. And that can happen. But living the Christian life and really trusting God can result in you having your church burned down and your family killed. And it is happening today, this minute, in places in Syria, Iraq, Nigeria, Indonesia, and unfortunately, I could keep listing countries where it's happening. Right now, some of your kinfolk in Christ will confess the faith at the point of death. No life, the life of faith is not defined by outcomes in this life. Listen to me. The life of faith is not defined by the outcomes of this life. Here's the answer to the question, what does the life of faith look like? Living by faith means that no matter what, we do not give up trusting in our God. We have made the decision to believe that he loves me, he knows me, he loves my family, he knows my family, and I will die with that confession on my lips. That's the life of faith. And sometimes you get in the barbecue and you don't even smell like smoke. And sometimes you don't. Let me tell you what the genuine 
rhema word of faith is. Let me tell you what a genuine positive confession in the biblical sense is. In February of last year, 19, or 2015, excuse me, I'm old. I'm not used to this millennium. In February of last year, 21 Coptic Christian men were lined up on the beach in Libya, each with a Muslim killer dressed in black standing behind him, and at a word, they all simultaneously had their heads sawn off with large knives. In the days and weeks leading up to their deaths, their ISIS captors tortured them and attempted to persuade them to deny Jesus in return for letting them live. They all refused, every single one of those men refused to deny Christ. They all died on the beach singing songs of praise to Jesus. My Bible says that those men are winners. My Bible says that they are more than conquerors. And that the world is not worthy of them. And as much as I love the stories of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, I just like saying their names. I think these are my heroes more than Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The ultimate risk of faith is that all of God's promises are not fulfilled in this world. That's precisely the reason why these heroes are listed in Hebrews. They were still living by faith when they died. They trusted that God would honor his promises in a way that this world could not contain. And that leads directly to this practical, yes, there are three points, briefly. Three practical points of application. They're not because I made them up, it's because it's right there in Hebrews chapter 12. How do we live the life of faith with patient endurance? How do we continue and not give up and shrink back and throw away our confidence in God? Well, the first thing is the life of faith is a life with an eternal perspective. The reason that so many of us become discouraged with how life is working out for us as believers is because deep down we believe that this life is all there is. I I have come to the realization that many people who will go to church this Sunday all over the world, at least in North America, and sit down in a pew and stand up and raise their hands and sing, first of all, believe that in their heart of hearts, the way that what they really believe, first of all, is that this is it, y'all. This is all we have to hope for. And number two, there is not a living God who will judge. Deep down, we believe that this life is all there is, and we are practical atheists because in the West, life has become so comfortable, so safe, so pleasurable that we do not see ourselves as strangers and aliens, strangers and wanderers in this world, but as permanent residents. But the defining quality of the greatest saints mentioned in Hebrews 11 is that they were looking forward to a fulfillment of God's present promises that was so wonderful, it was what they were looking forward to was so grand, glorious, wonderful that this world just wasn't big enough and wonderful enough to contain it. Do you know that God has things for you, has promised you things that are so great, so wonderful, so astonishing that this cosmos is too small to contain it? This box is too little. 
These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And if they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they could have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. When we have an eternal perspective, it gives us great endurance because we are looking forward to the prize in the midst of the current difficulty we are experiencing. Again, for me, everything relates to just a few things, dogs, hiking, okay, barbecue, that's right. That extends my, there you go. <laughs> and a few illustrations from C.S. Lewis. And so, I, but the thing that when I'm in the middle of, this is not what I was going up this hill to do. What I, one of the things that keeps me going, it's very simple, and, is that at the end of this trail, I will get horizontal on my sleeping pad in my tent, and I'm going to eat a hot meal, and I'm usually going to be with good friends. And somehow, I can do it. I'm looking forward to a time of refreshment and fellowship and being filled. And I can keep going up that hill. Which is a great segue to the next point of application. We need to lighten the load. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, who are we talking about? We're talking about people who were sown in two, people who had died by the sword, people who had wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, people who had received their dead back by resurrection, people who had been in the fiery furnace and come out okay, people who had stopped armies, people who had sat, who spent the night with lions just like they were cuddled up with teddy bears. That's the hall of faith. That's the great cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The image here is of a marathon race. The ancient marathon races were like the modern Olympics. The final length is run when the contestants enter the stadium. Surrounded by cheering and encouraging crowds, they complete their course. All of the saints of old today are in those stands, and they are the great cloud of witnesses, and they are cheering us on as we run the race. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. See, we did it. Now, I don't know anything about marathons personally, but I know about hiking. And I know if marathon runners are like me, and I think they are, they wear the lightest things they can. You, did you know that when I hike, I actually have cut my toothbrush in half because I don't want that extra .05 ounce or whatever in my backpack. And I know that marathon runners are wearing the lightest clothing and the lightest shoes they can wear to save weight. We don't need anything slowing us down. We need to see if we are living a life loaded down with self-indulgences and little clinging sins. If you find your faith wavering, maybe you need to see whether or not you are compromising on personal holiness because that will erode your faith. Finally, 
Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus here is called the founder, but the word is also pioneer. He is the pioneer of our faith. His trust in God, even to the point of offering up his life, is the model of the Christian faith. We actually alluded to that in the collect for the day. But there is something even more wonderful here in this word, which is translated in our ESV as founder, but can also be translated as pioneer. One commentator writes this, pioneer translates a particularly rich Greek word, archigos. The archigos is the author, the beginner, the instigator, the impetus, the trailblazer who goes before us. And here, the writer of Hebrews has in mind the first namesake of Jesus, Joshua, Joshua, son of Nun who scouted out the land of promise. Just so, this new Jesus has been the scout, blazing a trail through all of human existence and tested in every way like all of us, yet finding joy at the end of the suffering of the cross. Now listen to what this commentator says. This is great. But there is more. In the context of a race, and that's what we're talking about here, right? Uh, Therefore, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The archegos is the team captain. In the Greek games, the team captain would run the race and then wait at the finish line to encourage his teammates as they followed in his steps. Brothers and sisters, you are not running this race alone. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. He is the team captain. He is the great exemplar of the life of faith. He embraced the suffering of the cross because he knew that God's faithful promises, God's faithful, ultimate faithful promise was too great to be defeated by death. It would be fulfilled. That promise would be fulfilled in a way that could not be confined to this ordinary mundane reality. In fact, a new world, a new creation would have to begin for that promise to be accomplished. And that is precisely, that is exactly what happened when Jesus Christ, our pioneer, our archegos, our team captain, defeated death and on the third day rose in victory and resurrection. And at that moment, something new entered this cosmos that this cosmos ultimately will not be large enough to contain. A new creation has begun. He has won the race. And he says, when you grow weary, look to me. When you think about giving up and you think it's hard, remember the stripes on my back and the pierced nails in my hand, the the nails that pierce my hand, and keep running. Don't give up. There is a promise so great that it will not be able to be contained by this world. What God has for you, what God has in store for you, Christian brothers and sisters, is so wonderful. You can't imagine it now. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor the mind conceived of the things that God has for those in store for him who love him. There's nothing you can imagine. You can't imagine how glorious it's going to be. I am coming soon, and my reward is with me, Jesus says. And this old world is too big for that reward. It's better than you can imagine. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's a light for a look at the Savior, a life and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. 
and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.